0: I always feel a little bit reluctant, um, to ask. Um, but I always feel like the prayers are a little bit more are a little more genuine if we carry some awareness of what we're praying for. Can I ask? No, you can ask. I can't. Let's
1: see. We can just say she's having a really hard time.
0: She is. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks. anybody else. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us this morning in Mass, for your presence with us um, through this day and now into the evening. I ask a special blessing on all of us here at the outset of Advent. Um, You ask us, um, our church, you ask us, to do a penance, but not in the spirit of Lent, to, to give up things to make renunciations a part of our Advent, not in sorrow for the sins we commit in an effort to put them away, but in hope um, and longing. Um, we enter Advent in a spirit of waiting, to put things away, to increase the joy that we feel on Christmas, when we celebrate your coming. So help all of us to um, enter into Advent in the spirit, to do all that we do in a spirit of waiting, expectant, hopeful, um, giving up things um, so that we can draw closer to you, to know a greater joy um, in the fullness of your coming. ask for a special blessing on Madsen um, and Tracy. Um, maybe in some ways mostly for Tracy, Um, she's aware of so much more, she carries a lot. Help her to have a quiet heart, to trust, um, being aware of what she's up against. Um, Be with Madison to um, help her to open her heart. Um, Let the world that surrounds her, beyond Tracy's, um, offer her something to help her um, come to herself and um, and um, to come to you and ask a special blessing to on Marcy um, um, heal her please surround her with your protection help her to recover her health um, <laughs> this is for me <clears throat> help her to put away any stubbornness that keeps her from... Um, turning to help um, but let her know let her know um, how real our wishes are for her we offer these prayers in, um, in you Christ our Lord Amen for those of you who just came in late we, um, I offered an Advent prayer for all of us to enter into Advent in the spirit of waiting to take on penances, but not in sorrow, the way we do for Lent, but in hope and, and expectation. Um, and to, to seriously take on everything we do in a spirit of waiting. And Tracy asked if we could pray for Madison. for the So um, Karen and Joan, if you could... You remember Madison, the girl, she was watching over her. Um, apparently she's struggling. If you could keep her in, in your prayers. And also Tracy. Do not forget her. because She carries Madison and what she does. So. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's do... I, th- I think we've already done this section, so I'm going to be doing this again. I didn't do it with Friday group. Um, Actually, never mind. Let's skip it because I didn't do it with the Friday group. So I'm going to pass on on uh, East Coker today, and I'll pick it up next Monday because that'll put me on track with the other on, with the other group on Friday morning. So. I want to um, offer a warning to everybody and a note of enc- encouragement, really. I, I don't know how you found the EULA section. Um, I, I'm really enjoying Faulkner again. I haven't, as you know, I haven't read him in ages. I've been reading through the long summer section, and oh, and I put out a handout. Did you get it? Does everybody have it, Doug? <coughs> Joe, Karen, there's some cookies we brought tonight. Next week, Bob is, and Marcy are bringing food, so don't eat dinner. <laughs> um, bring a glass so you can fill it with wine. Oh, you did. Oh, good. Thanks. And you might want to you might want to call a Uber an Uber an Uber an Uber driver. So if you have a little bit too much to drink. <laughs> You might want to set up an Uber, an Uber driver, so if, if you have a little bit too much wine, somebody will take you home. It, it, I, who's going to be willing to be a designated driver when Bob's bringing wine? You are? I mean, some have to ply you with wine next week. Um, did everybody get the reading thing that I? It's a summary. <laughs> I have to apologize. I wish I could get these out a week in advance, but I haven't been able to. And I know, I know it would be helpful to have a better summary of the sections before you go into them because it would give you a better idea and, of what's going on and help you with your reading. But I, I just can't. So I know these are late, but I'm offering them just for whatever help they give you. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that what we do together will help you through any confusions um, But anyway you have that a warning for next week next week we do the long summer the peasant section I think will be relatively easy two things to keep in mind, I, can't, I cannot give this away and you don't know what restraint I'm having to practice in this very moment because I don't want to tell you something. I I do not want to... I cannot tell you how much I don't want to tell you because I hope it will just knock your pants off. And if that happens, I hope you're not in public. (laughs) What can I I say? Um, In the middle, or or very soon into the long summer, you're going to come upon a scene where the lover is pursuing the beloved. And I think you know enough right now that love's in trouble in our world. I mean you, you saw that in the phlegm section so you, you watch all these men going about what they're doing. In the Eula sections that's, that's going to come home darkly because we're going to watch these men, per, pursue is not the right word, flock, um, drool, gaze, I mean, it just, you know, most um, stupor-like kind of wonder. At this extraordinarily beautiful woman, and what it must have been like to be that kind of woman, with her beauty in that world, and at the end of that, the Eula section. You, my reading of it is what happens is awful. I mean, it's for me, it's sad to watch. Um, we'll get to that because that's where we're going in our time tonight. But, but if you put that together with what happens in the, the long summer section, this theme that I've mentioned that. We've entered a world in which people no longer know how to love. That we we people are so vested in economic interests that they look past each other, and um, we can't read these next two sections—the Eula section and the Long Summer—without being aware of the sexuality that's at issue between a man and a woman. Well, keep that in mind. That this that. People seem no longer to know how to love. For a, and, and remember, we saw that in a *Sound of the Fury*. That Benji was the one. It was the idiot who, who put himself forward. Quentin takes his life. Um, Caddy and Quentin Jr., the, the daughter, are promiscuous and running off. I mean, they the, the the rights of courtship, the the love between a man and a woman, it, and. An, as we know it, doesn't exist for all practical purposes. So, when you begin the um, long summer section, I, can't, I, can't, I want to tell you, what I can't. You're going to be presented with this lover pursuing the beloved, okay? And I can't go beyond that except to say, the language that Faulkner uses to describe everything that happens from that point afterwards is going to be really difficult, I think. Maybe not. I mean, maybe you won't be troubled by it. Because so much of what happens between the lover and the beloved is takes place in a world um, that almost turns musical. They will be passing through a forest or a meadow and the touching of leaves will be expressed in terms of a harmony and what we're, what we're, I think what we're supposed to feel is what we haven't felt since classical times and medieval times when spousal love between a man and a woman was seen in terms of this extraordinary event that would take place with Christ so that what, what should take place between a man and a woman and the love that they bring to each other is gone but it's there in everything that happens there's nothing that's going on that, that isn't presented in terms of, I'm going to call it this nuptial, um, or um, I'm, if I've got the spelling right, I think it's hymenian It from the from the hymen of a woman's hymen, her her membrane. There were, there were, during the Renaissance, there were, I think most of you know this, even if you're, you know, you're not specialists in literature, but you know that during the Renaissance, during marriages, the courtly marriages, masks were performed. They would put on a court mask. It was a sort of allegorical display of the gods and humans. It would be a part of the celebration honoring a marriage, whose marriage it was. The high, the Hymen, high, the Hymenian, high the Hymenian, Hymenian, Hymenian. <laughs> the Hymenian, I think That's is the pronounced pronunciation, the Hymenian, was a form of song. It was a form of um, ritual song around the marriage. Um, and if you read the, the long summer section, be aware that there is this sense of this celebration going on in nature. So, for the first time since I think in some of the chapters in Moby Dick, something is happening to bring these two, to show that these two lovers are one with nature, that there is a harmony. If you go back to the work that we did on Shakespeare, you remember, I think I mentioned this, that in Shakespeare's Pericles, we didn't read it together, but I mentioned it. In Shakespeare's Pericles, we have the only instance in literature that I'm aware of where a man actually hears the music of the spheres. Remember, the music of the spheres is the harmony produced by the, the rotation. It's, it, it can only be, inter, this is platonic, it can only be intellected. only the mind can grasp it. The senses can't. It's beyond our sphere. But Pericles hears it, he goes through this long suffering trying to recover his daughter and, and wife and both of whom he thinks are, are gone. He, he'll actually recover them both. It's very paradisal um, But in the moment of recovery, when his daughter is returned to him, he he enters into this joy. It's like the Paradisal moment in Winter's Tale, at the end of Winter's Tale, when Bergerwood Leontes and Hermione are reunited. It's that kind of a moment. Pericles is the only man who hears the music of the spheres, and when he does, he's put to rest. I think it's the harmony, hopefully all of us will know, entering heaven. That there will be this extraordinary harmony that will bring to rest everything in our souls. All desires will be quieted, there will be a joy. What happens in the long summer is like that, except it's not paradisal, it's not celestial, it's earthly. What happens between these two lovers, or the one lover and his beloved, is, um, is played out against this beauty and this sort of ritual, celebratory expression of music everywhere in harmony. So just, you, you, you will come across these strange phrasings, these, you know, these Faulkner doing what I think is just amazing. Some readers will read it and think, are you, are you kidding? What a bloated, pretentious writer. Or you can say, he's trying to help us recover something, to feel something that we don't have a language for anymore. The closest that I can think of is the Book of Wisdom, or the Solomon the book of Solomon where yeah, you know the yeah the, I, I read a Catholic, it like also yeah the book of Solomon. yeah the come beloved come, or or the very end of revelation when there is this come come beloved come um, be reunited with the you know the 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 um, um the groom the host Christ himself so anyway just a just a, a caution and a don't warning. Warning's not the right. Just be aware because some people come on come across that stuff and think, This is awful. I can't tell you what goes on, but some some people are troubled by it. And I'll just leave it at that, okay? So
2: You ready? <laughs> we are. Good.
0: That that means the work I've done is has taken somewhere, it's taken root. Um, okay, quick review because I, I really want to look at the end of the EULA section when I get there. For the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the differences between a classical and a modern understanding of our human nature. And you know from what we've been talking about that the classical understanding of our human nature insofar as it takes a political form is arbitrary conventional. People agree to make a contract to, to make this covenant with each other to to come out of a state of nature. It's understood, the assumption is. The basis for that whole way of looking at things is man's depraved. He is depraved. That's the understanding of the human soul. Take that away and you won't get any of it. He's depraved. Because he is at a state of nature, he exists at war with himself and others. The only way he can come out of that state of war is to make a contract, to say, I won't do this if you won't do this so they get along, so they make a contract. So that contractual way of looking at the world is (laughs) it is rooted in us, it shapes the way we deal with the world. It's not love, it's not adoration, it's not self-sacrifice, it's not making a living, it's making a contract and um, trying to get ahead. That's the nature of the modern world and we've been looking at it and all of the stories that we've been We It was there in um, um, Eudora Welty, in Hemingway, in O'Connor, and in Catherine Ann Porter, And we, <laughs> we saw it in spades in the Phlegm episode beginning The Hamlet because you know <laughs> when you pick up The Hamlet and read the first section of The Phlegm Um, chapter, it it presents all these men who are trying to outdo each other and be smarter and get ahead and best another man um, with these bargains, these contracts that they're making with each other. The classical view of man was very, very different. It it, it, It arose out of an understanding of the nature of the human person himself. And it was on the basis of this understanding of the human person that we saw that it was, um, it was good for us to mind our own business, to, to come to know ourselves, um, to practice virtue, um, to be careful not to wound, to, be, to have the strength to suffer ourselves before we inflict suffering on another. Those are some of the basic tenets. All of them came out of this understanding of the nature of the human person. So the whole understanding of politics in the classical world view came out of an understanding of the nature of who we are as, as humans. It wasn't arbitrary, it was based on our nature. Um, and we saw, it, we we talked about the nature of the commercial republic as it emerged in Dante's time and, is, and has taken the form it has over the centuries. Um, um, just very quickly, remember Dante's work I think is in some sense prophetic because he's showing the commercial regime in its inception, in its beginnings. And a couple of things that we learn from Dante, I didn't, I didn't say this before but I'll say it now. When, when Dante goes up the, the um, Paradiso, he's into the heavens with Beatrice. No, 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 sorry, sorry, it's, it's, it's in the section on the purgatory. When he comes to the level of the prideful, which is the f- basis of all sins, remember, it's who, who can tell me what are the seven sins that you, we have to do away with in purgatory? What, what are my reading? I think it's true. Our life on earth should be a purgation. We're supposed to be entering into purgatory now, taking up our sins. That's what Advent is. That's what Lent is. but Actively, but we're supposed to be doing it all the time. What are the seven sins? In order. Right? Don't look. No, you cheat. No. Pride, I just pride, <laughs> pride,
2: anger. That's
0: envy. that's pride, envy,
2: lust. lust. No, lust.
0: pride, envy, anger. Anger is a misnomer. Anger is not a sin. Wrath is.
2: Okay.
0: Anger is not a sin. Christ got angry. Remember, anger is the rectificatory. It it rectifies. It can, it can get out of control when it does. If it's wrath or rage, or, then anger is bad. Anger is not a sin. Pride, envy, anger.
2: Covetousness. Sloth. Slotony.
0: Then. Greed. <coughs> avarice. or right. 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 Gluttony. Right. And lust. And remember, lust is the last one because it's the one that most resembles love. It's the closest to love. So pride... Envy, wrath, sloth. Remember, the, the, the three primary sins are different from the three upper sins because they have an evil intent in mind. They want In our pride, in our envy, in our wrath, we want to hurt somebody else. We want to bring evil to somebody else. It has an evil end. There's no inherent evil in man, according to the Catholic view. The Protestant view says we are inherently evil. We, we, we became depraved in the fall. Catholic says no, God made us good, but we're flawed and wounded. The three bottoms, the three principal sins are a, um, a desire to bring evil to another to, to, to wish an evil end on another person, to wish them harm. To get above them, to put them down, or to inflict injury on them. That's what pride, envy, and anger are. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Anger wants to. Or I mean, pride wants to, be, to rise above somebody, be, be, be better than somebody else. Envy means to see somebody lose something because we don't have it. Anger means to hurt somebody because we've been wounded by them. We want to hurt them back. Sloth is the middle one, which is an insufficient love. We don't love enough the things that we should. So the bottom three sins are spiritual, whose end is evil, to, not to do good to another person, but to do harm. The upper sins—avarice, gluttony, and lust—love um, a good, but excessively. So sloth is um, an inadequate love. Um, avarice, gluttony, and lust is too great a love—a great that's a desire that's too great for the thing that we want. It can be things. It can be food and drink. It can be sex. So those are the sins. We're, those are the sins we're supposed to be. So Dante showed us that that in whatever we do in the commercial regime, the end should be to become better people, and to do and be, by becoming better people, doing penance and taking on our sins, we become more able to do good to other people, to enter into communion with other people with Christ. In the level of the prideful, he meets a. a in at several, at several instances he meets people that he makes clear try to be somebody they're not in their pride, parents can want their kids to do something that is not good for them. What Dante's teaching us is God, every person is made differently, the question is do we try to become who we've given to be and not try to be somebody we're not? Both in ourselves and in what we do with each other our spouses, our children so in the commercial regime Dante is pretty clear on the things that we should be working towards in spite of everything that goes on that's unnatural in the commercial regime. Okay. We looked at Shakespeare very briefly in Othello and Merchant of Venice. Remember Merchant of Venice shows that um, Venice is an inhuman regime because since its object is success and getting money Human beings um, are demeaned. They're, they don't bring in any money. That was Shylock's words, what's a pound of flesh? It's not worth as much as beef and goats, and remember, can't get any money for it, so when Bassanio says to Antonio, don't make this contract, a pound of flesh, you put your life at risk, Shylock's answer is, what's to gain here? A pound of flesh is worth nothing, except, the, except our reading a man's life. And you know what happens in court is Shylock wins his case, the law, he wins his case, Antonio's dead, the commercial regime dies. If he dies it means the contracts are so inhuman he won't survive. If you let him off, nobody will enter into contracts. Because who's going to trust a contract when it's not enforced? So Shakespeare is going right to the heart of what's wrong with the commercial regime. It can get inhuman and you know what happens at the end, everybody leaves. I mean, all the good people leave, they go back to Belmont. In Othello, Othello kills his wife, Desdemona. Iago, Iago can so work on people's trust that he can manipulate them to do things that, that, are, that are contrary to their own love. So we see in Shakespeare's treatment of the commercial regime that there's something inimical to our human nature, and even more importantly, something inimical to our loves. There's something that works against it. What have we seen in Faulkner? Same thing. You've got all these men going around. And then in the Euler section, um, we see it played out sexually between a man and a woman. Um, and we saw Melville's critique of the commercial regime in Moby Dick and then Faulkner's in Down Moses. So that brings us up to... Um, the present, we've been reading all of these stories in the modern world in which we're looking at people turned away from God. And I'll just remind everybody of, remember that the, the city came into existence with Enoch. Enoch is Cain's son, remember? After Cain killed Abel, God sent him into exile and Enoch, his son, is the founder of the first city. That's biblical. So we know that the city comes into existence when man turns away from God and attempts to create a world in which he's sufficient to himself. He doesn't need God anymore. Those are, that's the beginnings of the, of the city. So the city has always been a paradoxical entity in our, in our human experience. It expresses everything great about our human nature, the, the extraordinary things that we can do because of the way God made us but it also shows how dark um, we are, the things that we do when we're left to ourselves without God and that's what we've been seeing in the stories. The last thing, just um, when looking back at those stories and actually even forward to the Eula section, but in one way, it's, it's really interesting to see in, particularly in O'Connor's story and in um, Catherine Ann Porter's Flower and Judas, that, um, that we're dealing with people who are who are struggling to avoid Christ, to hide from him. Mrs. May did everything she could to be self-sufficient. She did not want the green sleeves on her property she, except to work for her. She felt the threat of them and um, the two dreams that she has um, present her with, with some, what seems to be to her some threat to her self-sufficiency, the bull intruding on her and the sunlight in one of them. In both dreams we're being, we're shown that something is being offered to her, a grace, that she's refusing. So when the bull charges her and then impales himself on her, I think we're meant to see that that's a moment of grace being offered And you know my own reading of it, I I think it's received, but the cost of it is is real violence. In Flowering Judas we have another character whose world is turned upside down by a dream, because Laura does everything she can to, to commit herself to this communist revolution. The communist revolution offers itself as a form of salvation on earth. It's a substitute for Christ. Marx's position is we can make a kingdom here on earth. And you know how attractive that is. People who, are, who want to have what they want now become committed to it. Laura was committed to it. Brad Gioni was committed to it. And what she's lived with in that commitment is a sense of disillusionment, that it's failing everywhere. And she does everything she can to hide from Christ. Even though she was raised Catholic, she does everything she can to keep away. But she's, her, her life is violated in one sense by this dream that she has at the end. Remember, we, we read that. Um, I, Marcy asked this question. Um, I can't remember. I think it was last week, maybe. You guys were here last week, right? Yeah, she asked, yep. I think it was last week. She asked me to, I hope, take this home to her, Bob, because I've yep. I, I her. I've had her, her on my mind since, because uh-huh. I went home that night, I'm not happy with my answer to her. She said, define grace, it's like Marcy, define logos, define grace, she does that. <laughs> um, and I said it's a supernatural gift. Add to that this, grace is a supernatural gift, it's a, it's a gift beyond the reach of our own powers, our own natural powers, but the specific gifts as we know them are faith, hope, and charity, love. It seems to me what's what's being asked of Mrs. May, of Mrs. Turpin, remember she has that revelation too, and Laura, what's being offered to them is love that's divine and self-sacrificial, because all of those women want to have complete control of their lives. So when a grace thrusts itself in, it's shattering that's remember that circle that defines Mrs. May? It's a, It's an image of her self-sufficiency. She does not want anything coming in on that circle because that circle defines her self-sufficiency. And I hope everybody's clear about this. That circle, it's not just for, I mean, we're, the stories we dealt with had to do with women. But I hope everybody's seen that those same things apply to men, that men can surround themselves in a circle of self-sufficiency and not want anything to violate it. So grace, as it's presented in those stories, I believe is a form of of self-sacrificial love that's beyond the reach of man, that we, we with our own natural powers, cannot perform, cannot come to a love like that on our own. That comes from Christ. So that's the grace that's offered. And, and it's made explicit in the Laura dream, because remember in Laura, it's take eat. Remember um, Eugenio offers himself, it's he's blood and, um, isn't it the blood and body? Yeah, the body and blood. That he himself is turned into a Eucharist for her because she's, she's betrayed him. She's the, the Eucharist is inverted. Remember I gave the example in Dante's Inferno that Satan is eating because what you would expect to find in the center of hell is the opposite of heaven. If, if at the center of heaven is Christ offering himself freely, the opposite of that would be our using other people to feed on them. So what's, what's being offered to those two women um, is a grace in that sense. Okay? It's, it's a self-sacrificial love that's divine in character. It's a love man's not capable of coming to himself. Um, is, that, is that clear? Any questions about that? Give that to Marcy, will you, because I, I hope that okay. helps answer her question. Mm-hmm. Tell her I... She's on my mind and in my heart tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, The last thing about dreams before we pass on from dreams, why these dreams? Mrs. Turpin had a revelation. Remember, and she gets angry at God and starts to scream. And who do you think you are? And the echo comes back. Who do you think you are? Um, and Mrs. May has those two dreams, and then Laura has her dream. Why dreams? I
1: mean, I it's a method. But hmm.
0: A method communication. I, th- I think it's because if you look at the, if, if you, I think if we look at ourselves, if you look at what's going on with the characters in the story, try to convince Mrs. May that there's something she's not doing in her life. What would her response be? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't she argue? I mean, wouldn't she defend it? I mean, mm-hmm. typically if we're faced with a criticism or our response gets defensive, we block it out. Dreams circumvent reason. They go around. Now I really want to make this point and underline it because Freud was very clear on the importance of dreams. Freud makes it clear that things come to us in our dreams as a way of getting around the reason, the rational structures we put up to get in our way, to, to, to hide, to defend ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We live behind these walls and, and we use our reason those walls are are an expression of our reason, the way our reason can justify everything we do, the bad things. We just don't want to see them or admit them. Through dreams come these revelations, because through dreams, well think about it, the mind, the intellect is, is at rest at night, yeah? The defenses are let down. So something can enter us during that Relaxed period that can't when we're on guard and we don't want to hear what people have to say about us. Remember, remember one of the definitions of prophecy that I gave at the beginning is the literature that we're going to do is going to show us things about ourselves that we don't want to hear. That's one of the values of the stories that they're revealing us. They're revealing us to ourselves, and yeah, that we learn to see things about ourselves that help us. Um, so,
1: is awareness and the self-actualization, because you have to have that first, you need to have that first before you get the grace. Because it seems like none of those women really saw themselves as, yeah. as they were. Yeah. And part of get, the point of grace was they had to
2: make that realization.
0: The, the real interesting thing about these stories, and I, I don't know that I'm going to answer the question you're wrestling with right now, here, but Except for the Mrs. Turpin story, the revelation—the story entitled "Revelation," where she has that vision. Yeah. Except for that story, and remember, in that story, she has that vision, and she sees herself clearly. But it's a—it's a—it's a cold shower in a sense, because in the vision, she sees that she and her husband are bringing up the end of the line when she thought she was better than everybody.
2: Right, that
0: And it's so clear that that she makes her peace with that that she goes through this quarrel, remember she comes out of the doctor's office Mm -hmm. furious and then gets angry and she comes to that revelation and there's a sense in which she's made her peace with it, that she sees herself more clearly. With the Flannery O'Connor stories and the Catherine Ann Porter story, Fire and Judas, and the Greenleaf stories, they leave us with those visions. We don't know what's going to happen. The reason that I believe, mean, I know there were some disagreements in the class, but the reason that I believe that the, and with the grandmother, and a good man that's hard to find, the reason that I believe Grace took in every one of those instances is because of the way they're presented. In the Mrs. May story, remember it says, um, how did it go, that her sight was restored but what she saw overwhelmed her. I'm not getting the language right, but her sight was restored and the sight of it was unbearable. It was unbearable. Some people read that as it didn't take. I, 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 think, that's, I, I think that's not accurate. I, that sight is an accurate description of somebody coming out of the cave because the moment you come out of the cave, you're blinded. You cannot bear the light, but you're coming out of the cave. That didn't exist before. Now what she does with it I mean, that's part of the beauty of it. It's, the, the reason I think this is so powerful is she leaves us there because it seems to me that's the situation we're supposed to be in moment to moment in our life. Will we change? Are we open? Will we, will we take a hard step? Will we go against ourselves? She does that with um, the grandmother, too, I think, but the fact that the grammar says, well, you're one of my own means she's seen something she's never seen before in her life. And the Laura episode is the same. You know, when she has the dream, she comes out into the past tense. We've gone through that, right? You're a following me, yes. Or mm-hmm. Remember, she's in the present tense in that whole story until the dream. And when she comes out of it, so something's happened. Now, what they do with it, that to me is part of the beauty. Because in that sense, we're being asked... We're being given stories that ask us to so identify with a person that suddenly we have to ask ourselves are we, are we receiving a grace? What do we do? What do we do with the grace? Will we refuse it? Will we go on the way we go on? You know, so. Okay, so this Oh, the, I did want to forget this. Remember, one of the interesting things about Freud is that he's he's the one who systematically opened the unconscious to the modern mind. One of my great criticisms of Freud, and to me, it's a serious one, is Freud didn't believe in free will. He believed that these, the polymorphous perverse and the edible conflicts, were determined in our character. They were, we couldn't escape them. I I think he's absolutely wrong on both accounts, but. And it's not because I don't believe we're capable of those perversities, because I believe we are, that, that, that that's a dark part of our soul. It's, it's not for those reasons. What Freud didn't see, I mean, in addition to the fact that he doesn't see that we have free will and the way that that colored his psychology, which to me is unfortunate, but what he didn't see was what we have to call the spiritual unconscious. Freud was very clear in lots of ways about the animal unconscious, that part that's part of our somatic, our physical existence, but the spiritual unconscious, because his ideas of we don't have, his notion that we don't have free will wouldn't allow it. The idea that we have a spiritual unconscious, that grace can enter our experiences, that something divine, that that there's a transcendent part of our souls and that God can speak to us, even if he has to overcome some resistance. Freud would not have seen that. He wouldn't have allowed for it. And yet, so many of the stories that we're dealing with go there. Yeah? Mrs. May, Mrs. Turpin, Laura, and now I'm going to say Anne Ratliff. Because I don't want to leave it out. Because you know, if you've read the the, uh, Eula section, that the Eula section ends with Ratliff's vision of um, phlegm, Taking on the prince. I want to end with that because to me it's just hilarious. But, so anyway, the, the, um, two things to keep in mind as we're going forward. One is, it's not an accident that dreams have had the, played the role that they have in the stories that we've been reading. Because they're a way of showing that grace is at work in the world. That God is, is trying to offer himself in a way that gets past the blocks we put up. The way we use reason to argue, to justify ourselves, to explain away. So instead of being open, this is Ishmael again, instead of being open to the world, to see the wonder and beauty of it, we close down and make everything dark. Um, we're not open to the wonder of things. So, so in that sense, dreams is very important, but I want to I make an extension of this. Dreams and stories, because stories, in a sense, are a form of vision. They're not dreams, and sometimes dreams make up a part of the stories, but the stories themselves are doing what dreams do. They reveal something to us. Um, they show us things about ourselves we don't like. It's been a constant in what we've been doing, so. Okay, let me stop there. Quick. Any... Any... Thoughts about what we've been doing leading up to this point. I must not be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well,
3: it's easier reading. That's, I guess that's right.
0: It's easier reading.
3: Well, it's easier. You know, I mean, it's poetic prose. I guess, in my estimation. Yeah
0: actually that's a good way of putting it Bob huh? particularly, particularly with what I what I think Faulkner I think Ken you came up I think maybe later than, but I gave everybody a, a warning the the long summer section that's coming up after the, ULIS, the section we're going to do tonight it's full of difficult language it's poetic yeah, no, extremely poetic yeah. and you can get turned off on it but I tried to give a reason that that I can't give something away, you have to read this, but it begins with this lover pursuing the beloved, and we're in a world in which love doesn't exist, so. but we, we enter into this sort of pastoral um, world of shepherds and shepherdesses with wreaths and flowers and the lover pursuing the beloved, and, and the descriptions so often present the surrounding world in terms of music, as if a great celebration is taking place. I can't get hymen- hymenian, hymenian, from a woman's hymen. Hymenian. There's this hy- hymenian harmony. Oh, I like that. There's a little alliteration of H's. <laughs> There's this hymenian harmony. This music that's that's accompanying everything that they do, and the language. <coughs> you can say it's a nuisance, but if you realize that in some way something is happening to make them one with the beauty of nature, what's happening but involving this lover and the beloved is exactly what happened with Ishmael when he looked at nature and saw wonder, except they're involved in it because an act of love is taking place. during it. So, Faulkner's doing something extraordinary. You're either going to come back and really hate me next week, or, 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 you'll see that Faulkner's doing something no nobody, nobody, nobody in the modern world gets close to doing. Okay, one background question before we get into the EULA section. All of the readings of the last couple of weeks going to Advent, or the, as, as we approached Advent, were taken from the prophet Daniel. If any of you have been in church, you know. And all of them have to do with these prophecies to Nebuchadnezzar and then his son, a great statue and the crumbling of it, and then he wore, he, he prophesied to the sun that um, that God took a measure of the sun and found him wanting, and his life, his life, his years were numbered. And and then he gave. He had the prophecy of the four beasts. Every one of those is about nations falling. He he. The prophecy occurs at a time when the Jews are in captivity. Jerusalem's taken over. Now remember, one of the great images we've had from Dante forward is that this work from St. Augustine, but in in literary terms from Dante, that um, the world is Egypt. That's an image from St. Augustine. It was one of the most important images in Dante's Commedia. I've said it a a number of times. If we ever get to a point where we look at what goes on in this world as our final home, we're in trouble. St. Augustine calls us a a peregrine people, a peregrine, a pilgrim. We're in flight, we, we can't ever rest here because this is not our home. We're, we're in exile, we're meant to be because our home is elsewhere. So Dante looked at the world as Egypt. When he, when he starts the purgatorio, the image that shows Dante getting out of hell and moving into purgatory, in a purgatory is Egypt, leaving Egypt. The ship of souls that arise on Dante's there is from Egypt. All of the images in Daniel are of Jerusalem being taken over by Babylon. So here's my background question. In in what way are we as a Jerusalem city, in what way have we been taken over by Babylon? Has America lost its way? Are we in captivity? Are we, are, we in, are we in tune with our original? Remember, every epic we've read is about a founding, yeah? It's about a f- people coming to a new identity of itself by having to deal with a disorder. So that national sense of identity has been a part of all the epic readings we've been doing, and they're implied in so many of the short stories. Where is America? Have we lost our way? Or, or like Daniel's Jerusalem, are we a captive city now? I just wanna throw that out because we've been talking about the city as an image and the modern world without God and who we are and where we are. Okay. Like the Jews in Egypt, have we so accommodated ourselves to a way of living that we've undermined our ties with God. That's that's been the consistent theme of all the epics we've read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy. I'm going to say that Faulkner's Go Down Moses is an epic, about a national people, it's about the South. And I'm going to say again that the trilogy is epic in scope, that it's dealing with a people. So one of the fundamental questions we should be asking is, what is the disorder in question here um, has a people lost its way and how much is the story about a people recovering its way with God one of the fundamental themes of the story remember I said that the great the great theme of, um, of the trilogy is God This this is the overriding theme. I really believe what the whole trilogy is about is this. So I'm giving it away. Um, The overriding theme of the trilogy is God putting his house in order. Now, How is that going to happen and what's the disorder? The disorders that we saw in the beginning is there's this unnatural sense of law, of contract, that people use the law to get one up on another person. Yeah, You enter into contracts and you don't like somebody beating you getting the better of you, so you want to get back at them. Either that or you enter into a contract because you want to be one up on somebody. So one of the interesting things about law, as it's presented here, is that the law is meant to help us arrive at a good end. It has a good as its end. But what we see here is that people often use law for unscrupulous ends, for bad ends, for wrong ends. So very often every law, every law that's enacted has good it's at its end, but every law has, this is, I'm going to make a generalization here, and I hope it holds out. Every law has concealed in it some potential for wrong that people don't see when they enact it. Isn't that always true? Slavery, abortion, or the, you know, um, all those laws. People enact laws all the time, and very often they do it for emotional reasons, they want to correct a wrong, but they don't see that when they enact that law, they're enacting a law that has concealed in it something that will open up a wrong, that will reveal a wrong. So we live in this, the world that Faulkner's showing us is that people are bound by this contractual sense of things, but that people often use those laws for unscrupulous ends. Jody's the perfect example. He, he enters into this thing. Think he's he's going to screw Ab. He's going to get the better of. It. And and no sooner does he enter into it than he is, he's just raked, and he he provides the opening for Flem Snopes, to begin his rise, and that's what we're going to watch. Okay, let's turn to the the Eula section. There were a couple of passages that I, that I read last week that I just want to remind you of. Um, here, maybe it would be good to look at them. Um, turn to page 85. This is the point at which Ratliff is getting more than a little concerned about what he's watching Flem do. And he, more than anybody else, sees that there's something right now Um, that should be stopped. Almost everybody who's watching Phlegm do what he's doing is aware of it, but nobody's doing anything about it. People are just watching as this unfolds. He goes out to Mink Snopes um, farm, I think to feel him out, to find out something about Phlegm, but he uses the ploy of coming out to sell a sewing machine and and clearly the wife wants one, even though um, nobody asked Ratliff to come out. And Ratliff and Mink make a deal and Ratliff sells the sewing machine to Mink and he gets in turn for it a ten dollar note that has Phlegm's signature on it. So it's a way that Mink can get the sewing machine without having to pay for it because he knows that his, his cousin, Phlegm owes that money. So he puts that towards the machine. Ratliff leaves Um, with that note, and he also leaves with a note written to um, Ike, the idiot, Um, thinking that he can best stoke now, because now he can use these these two notes in his favor against phlegm. That's the first, this is the first passage on page um, 84. After they make this deal Mink says something to Ratliff, and it has to be seen in this context. When Ratliff came out to meet Minx, he had in his mind, it's it's a few pages earlier, he said, if if you're going to be the Snopes, you have to find a Snopes that will take down the Snopes, somebody who's as willing to burn a barn as Phlegm, Snopes himself. So the whole motive is to get somebody who's as unscrupulous as Phlegm to be able to use him against them. So you're watching Ratliff already begin to deal with evil. Is that clear? This is so important, because in this community, what we're watching is people don't do anything. This is unfolding. They're not doing anything. They're watching it. So in their innocence, they're allowing evil to spread. That's what we're experiencing. Ratliff wants to do something. He knows in, in order to be successful, he needs to get a snope against the So He goes up to Mink. This is what Mink says to him on page 85. They've made the agreement, and then Mink says, give Flynn a message. Top of 85. Then you give him a message for me. Say, phlegm, one cousin from one cousin that's still scratching dirt to keep alive to another cousin that's risen from scratching dirt to owning a herd of cattle and a hay barn. To owning a cattle and a hay barn. Just say that to him. Everybody hears the warning there, right? What's he saying? Is it clear? What's he saying, Carl?
3: That another snow now has goods Products, riches that make him vulnerable.
0: Vulnerable, yeah. Now that he's got hay in a barn, somebody else can now burn his barn. Okay? And there's somebody who's willing to do that because we know the respectable people are not going to do that. Because the respectable people right now are getting trounced on. They're not doing anything. Okay? Um, so Ratless has that. Turn to page 90. This is that passage I read before, towards the bottom of 90. Um, Ratliff has just returned after a sickness and he learned, remember, he learned about this northerner who bought this goat spread who's invested a fortune in it, but who needs goats. He lacks the goats that he needs to make a a venture of this. He comes back to town, he's talking with, I think it's um, Bookwright and yeah, a book write, maybe told, I'm not sure. And as they're talking together, suddenly Ike Snopes walks by. And you know that Ike is an idiot. Remember, he um, he's an idiot. And this is the comment. Um, and I read it now because I want you to keep this in mind as you go forward to that long summer chapter because it's important to keep that in mind. Just know that. Page 90. Another one of them, Bookwright said in that harsh, short voice. Ratliff watched the creature as it went on, the thick thighs about to burst, about to burst from the overalls, the mowing head turned backwards over its shoulder, watching the dragging block because he so often carries this, you know, drags this block along with him. And they tell us we was all made in his image, Ratliff says, with that sense of irony. You know that he's got that facetious <coughs> mind. From some of the things I see here and there, maybe he was, Bookwright said. That, to me, shines a light on the entire trilogy. What is Bookwright, what, what, what do we see in the exchange between the two men at that point? Ratliff saying, and we were made in the image of God. If we were made in the image of God, how to explain this. And Bookwright's saying, from some of the things I see here and there, maybe he was, Bookwright said. Is it clear what he means by that? If we were made in the image of God, well, if we were made in the image of God and God is love, then what would you expect to find all around you, particularly in everything you did? Love, yes. When you look around at the world that Faulkner is showing us in this little Hamlet community, what do you find? Men and women loving each other? Lovely. Nothing close to it. So if you set them next to Ike, okay. It's like Benji, I mean, and it's really, it's sort of amazing what Faulkner's doing because what he does with these idiots, with the Benji figure in Sound of the Fury, and what he's doing here with Ike, and what he's going to do in um, the long summer, is that he's showing us that when people become civilized, whether they know it or not, they begin to turn away from God, and it's, it it almost takes an idiot to show us love the way it was supposed to be. I, I think everybody came out of the Sound of the Fury that way, right? When we look at Benji running out every day to meet Caddy, he's full of ardor. He he wants to say something. He can't say it. Um, there's this longing in his soul. Who else feels that way, in any healthy way, in the in the sound of the fury? So remember, hold on to that. Um, page ninety-eight, the top of the page. Those who watch the clerk now sound not the Petty disposition of a blacksmith, but the usurpation of an airship. Because that's the point at which Flem not only took Jody's position in the store's clerk, he took Jody's position um, at the head of the gin when they were harvesting their, their um, crop, and he took Jody's position next to Varner when they begin to take an account of everything. And, and, and you know what happens. In addition to all that, Snopes are beginning to turn up everywhere. Io takes over the blacksmith shop, and we know that he's going to be a teacher, and, and Io is smart enough that he doesn't even show up at the blacksmith shop. He hires his cousin, um, Eck. So and I've said this before, so the usurpation of an airship is not just the usurpation of Jody, it's the usurpation of a way that the Snopes have come into this agrarian world, this communal world, that we, you know, this this sense of we that def- has defined the sound, and it's injected into this communal world, this sense of an I, getting ahead. So we're watching a culture <laughs> go to hell. I mean, what else can mm-hmm. I say? About it? It's just disintegrated. So what we saw in the Sound and Fury with the Thompson family we're seen in another way affecting a whole culture. We're watching a culture lose its sense. Okay? I keep being surprised that you guys keep coming back. <laughs> Things are getting darker and darker. Actually, I love this story. I love this story. You're, I, I hope you'll be delighted by it at the end when, as I am. Some of you, I know, some of you may not, I'm not sure.
2: But,
0: um, And then um, Ratliff's line to Varner remembered the Phlegm section ends with Ratliff learning about this farmer who had this um, herd of goats and he knew that the northerner needed 50 and nobody else knew about this farmer so he goes into the store when he knows Phlegm is listening and he drops all of this information about this northerner knowing that Phlegm will try to one-up him and go get it and he does and after he gives him a day you know bookwright says go out and get it now and Ratliff delays we know what he's up to I mean he, he drops hints everywhere and he, he knows what Phlegm will do so we're watching Ratliff take on Phlegm so just like Ab took on Stamper remember to best him Ratliff's doing that with Phlegm. Are you
3: going to explain that in detail about the exchange of notes and I'm gonna do that right
0: now. Yeah. okay I'm gonna I'm not, but I'm not sure that I'm going to do it to your satisfaction confused it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> by the way that note Hi. I gave you that handout I gave you last week goes into that transaction in detail so that's where you should look for it in detail but basically what happens is this he, 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 he drops these hints trusting that Flem is going to do that <laughs> and then he does and when he when he does he comes into the store on page What page is it? Um, uh-oh. Where is that page? Sorry. Where he says, you won, you beat, oh here, page 93. Middle of the page. You beat me, Ratliff said. How much? The other turned his head and spat into the sand filled box beneath the cold. So 50 cents. Now remember, Ratliff, um, they were, let's see, I paid 75, 25 cents for my contract. They're worth 75 cents. So, Ratliff expects to make a 50 cent profit on each one. Flem says 50 cents, which cuts Ratliff's profit in half, right? Um, Ratliff says, All I am to do, all I am to get is 75. I could tear the contract up and save hauling them to town. So, he's not going to have anything to do with that deal. He's saying no to Flem. All right, Snoop says, What do you give? I'll trade them, I'll trade you this for them. So, he gives Mink's note to him and when Flem sees it, he knows that he's been bested because that note will cover the cost. If Ratliff burns up the note, Flem presuming Flem doesn't know where this, who this got, the northerner, you know, so he'll have to transport the goats and rather than do that, because he was counting on getting the best of Ratliff. Ratliff says, I'll burn the note up. And Flem says, "No, how much then? And Ratliff gives him the note from Mink. When Mink sees that he realizes that he's been bested because that takes care of it. Um, Dad will have to pay for it because that's the money he owed Mink. Um, but then he says hold on, Ratliff takes out the other note to um, for Ike and Flynn says hold on and he goes to get um, Ike and he brings him out and when Ratliff sees that it's Ike. Out of compassion for him, he takes a lighter and burns up Ike's note. So what we know at the end of that section is that Flint, Ratliff has tried to take on Flem to best him, to stop this. To, I mean, so that because if that gets around, it'll mean something. Um, and he gets him on the first note, but Flynn gets him on the second. So it's a draw.
2: Well, it, well,
0: because he showed Right, but it's still, I mean, in terms of bargaining, it's a, so at the end, the, at the next page in 90, 97, a couple of pages later, when he's there with Little John, he um, says, I'll give it to him, Mrs. Little John said, if it ain't too long. He asked Mrs. Little John to give Varner a message. It don't matter, Ratliff said, but if you happen to think it, just tell him Ratliff says it ain't been proved yet. <coughs> Neither, he'll know what it means. Remember, at the very beginning of the story, Varner comes to him, and Ratliff says, there are only two men in this co- county who, can, who are capable of dealing... He knows it's not Jody. Jody's made an idiot out of himself in the very beginning. He says, there's only two men in the county capable of going up against him, because he doesn't want to underestimate evil. He knows a shrewd Flemens. So he says, there's only two men. One of them has the last name of Varner, but his first name isn't Jody. And the other one hasn't been proved yet, and his name isn't Varner. We don't know who that is though I mean we do. it's now at the end, after this attempt to get the better of Flem, he sends this message to Varner. Tell him it ain't been proved yet. because what happened between the two of them came to a draw. So he bested Flem Flem bested him. Now and I think it's really important to say this before we go going to I've been t- see one of the great themes of what's going on here is the South is is learning to come out of its innocence. Too many people don't deal with evil. It's just a way of life. We don't deal with it very well. We we let too much we let too much happen because we're too innocent. We want to be left alone to do what we do. Ratliff is trying to take phlegm on. So one of the one of the great themes that's emerging in this is the education of Ratliff that he's learning something about himself. And right now, this, because he's really the, one of the shrewdest men in this, and he will be through the whole story. Um, but right now, he's, he's he's a little bit chagrined because Phlegm managed to do this thing.
3: Well, he, he came out at a draw with Phlegm, but then he paid the woman who runs the boarding house to support Ike. And so he's really out money in the end, but that's redeeming himself, I guess.
0: I think it's in his. He's a he's a good man.
3: Yeah, because he's a, man, a really he good does man. That. So from a monetary standpoint, though, he's
2: out. I you mean,
0: know, he's lost on the beat. He's okay with that. By, yeah. by the way, you know that we just learned that Ratliff made this windfall and all these deals he made earlier. I mean, he made a fortune. He's got the money. But I think it's. I, let me. We. I'm going to read into this, Carl. But I think, I think you'll go along with this. Ratliff is watching this phlegm clan take over. It's like nepotism, you know, family. He's a good man, he wants to resist it, um, but he's also aware of something inhuman in it. And he looks at Ike as an idiot who's virtually helpless, and I think out of the kindness in his heart, he wants to help, so it's just a generous giving on his part. But that's apart from this struggle that he's entered into to deal with this man whose whose whole way of dealing with the world is to use other people to get ahead and he knows how important it is to answer that, to stop it. So that's where we are here. Okay, I want to look at the EULA section. I'm gonna do this very very quickly. I I wanted to go through some of the readings, but I'm not going to do this. Um, You've all got the short summary. I apologize for the shortness of again, but at least it gives you a summary. In the first chapter of the Eula section, there are two parts to it. Um, They're all one chapter, there's no sections, but the first part shows Eula growing into childhood and then adolescence, and It's clear from the way that Faulkner presents her that she is this extraordinarily sexual person. That there's something voluptuous about her sexuality is exuded in her and everything that happens. Um, I look at this and it's made me I mean it's really wonderful the way this... when I read this section this time and last time I think certainly this time I tried to picture a woman growing up like this. What it must have been like for her. I tried to picture Sophia Loren say growing up, and because she, she is so visibly sexual in the way, just her beauty, her the voluptuousness of her body, what it must have been like for her as a, as a girl, surrounded by girls, and surrounded by men gawking at her. Or Little or vigil, or I mean you find, I don't know her. But, but it also, it also calls to mind the way Faulkner describes her, you know her passivity, she doesn't move, she doesn't do anything. It's almost as if he's showing us an aspect of womanhood herself, at, at least as Faulkner, that there's something to a woman's sexuality that, that can only be described in terms of stasis. And I know that's not gonna be flattering to a lot of women, but, it, and I, but let me just ask, I mean, look to Mary for a help, that there's something in a woman, by virtue of the fact that she has a womb, that waits for a seed. In some sense, she doesn't have to do something. I, I don't want to press that. But but there's something of that sense that emerges in the way that Faulkner presents Eula. She just she exudes sexuality. Her whole life is defined. She's not going to have to do anything. She doesn't have to learn or, you know, in a sense, she knows it all. It's all in her because her whole life is going to de- be defined in terms of whatever goes on outside her. He calls her the centrix, the matrix, the queen. Um, The opening is about (laughs) Jody, and I think to imagine this, you have to imagine Jody is a product of this Puritan Protestant South. He is so offended by the the response of men towards her. Turn to, I think it's 111. Yeah, he's so offended that he won't have her walk to school because if she does, the men line up to, to watch her. On page 11, or sorry, 110. This lasted for almost a month, then Jody decided that she should walk the 200 yards from the schoolhouse to the store and meet him there. To his surprise, she agreed without protest, because usually she doesn't want to bother. This lasted for exactly two days. On the second afternoon, the brother fetched her home at a fast single foot, bursting into the house and standing over his mother in the hall and trembling with anger and outrage, shouting. No wonder she agreed so easy and quick to walk to the store and meet me, he cried. If you could arrange to have a man standing every hundred feet along the road, she would walk all the way home. She's just like a dog. As soon as she passes anything in long pants, she begins to give off something. You can smell it. You can smell it ten feet away. <laughs> God. <laughs> God. <laughs> just hilarious. The next page. Um, I have to tell you what Suzanne's response was this morning when we went into the bathroom together. She was thinking about We were talking about this last night. After he insists that he take her to school, he has to deal with the uncomfortable presence of her body behind him. And you can imagine if she's voluptuous and full-breasted, what that's going to do to Jody. So on page 111, towards the bottom, But almost at once he began to feel the entire body behind him, which even motionless in a chair seemed to postulate an invincible abhorrence of straight lines, jigging its component boneless curves against his back. He had a vision of himself transporting not only across the village's horizon but across the embracing proscenium, that's the front part of the stage, proscenium of the entire inhabited world like the sun itself, a kaleidoscopic convolution of mammalian ellipses. (laughs) Suzanne, you remember that after this gets going, Jody reaches a point where he insists that she wears a corset You want to describe this, Doc, what you said this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really funny. You sure? You know about this more than I do. (laughs) 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 She she said, Well, I I, I mean, I don't have anything to be embarrassed about. To me, the whole thing's hilarious, but she said, I hadn't quite put it together, but she said, I mean, she was laughing at Jody's just. The puritanical side of him, he's outraged that she's has the sexual, because his idea, he does he's the eternal bachelor, he's not going to marry. I think he's disgusted by sexuality, so to have her rubbing up against him on his horse when he... But she said, I hadn't put it together, but how did you put it, Doc? I'm not going to get this right. said, um... How did you put it? That when she was thinking, there, there are corsets that I guess are for the lower part of a woman and not the upper, but she was picturing this corset coming up all the way to the breasts and holding it in place so, so the body wouldn't move. It was Jody's way of wanting to make sure she was contained. Um, <laughs> God. Anyway, just it's hilarious to watch Jody. And remember what happens when they get the news that Eula's pregnant. He is outraged. He wants to get a gun and go shoot the gun. I mean, and that's, that's how much this means to him. We get the story of Labov following this. He's the school teacher, remember, very Puritan himself. He's described in terms of being a monk or a priest, zealous. Um, he, he, so We have this sense that he's... intellectually he is stimulated to do everything he can. Oh, he wants to become governor of the state, but he plans to go into law school. Varner gets him to teach at the school and he teaches and. Faulkner describes this moment when he turned around and saw this eight-year-old girl in his class and began to teach her from that way, that time forward as he continues his studies. Then he reaches a point where he completes his studies and is going to go to graduate school and and then Faulkner says, but he couldn't do it. He could not go forward. Um, he had to go back to the schoolhouse because he couldn't tear himself away from her. And Faulkner describes him as somebody, there's that description of, um, um, oh, here on page 131, in the middle of the page, and he did not want her as a wife, he just wanted her one time as a man with a gangrene hand on f- or foot, thirst after the extra, which would leave him comparatively whole again. We know, I think, most I think, we either know it in ourselves or we know it of other people. That obsessions become so rigid that they take over a person. We've been—I mean—so much of the news in the last couple of months has been exactly about this sort of thing. Go down again. Um, He—he could have—he could have walked forward that day when they had the graduation ceremony, but it says he couldn't. He couldn't go ahead. He had to turn back and comes back um, at the bottom of the page 131. There it was again, out of the books again, the deft defacement of the type which had already betrayed him, the crippled Vulcan to that Venus, who would not possess her, but merely own her by the single strength which power gave." He prostrates himself on the bench where she sits on the next page. When she comes in, he tries to grope her, and on page 131, as he's groping, Eula says, stop pawing me, she said, you old headless horse, horseman, Ichabod Crane. Um, whatever else we say about her, she had enough moral sense to say to him, stop it. And he does, and you know what happens after that. He's convinced that she will go out and tell Jody, and that Jody's going to get a gun, and he's going to have to answer, that, that his brother, her brother is going to defend her honor. He goes to the store in, in, in the spirit of a man facing his own death. He knows he's going to meet some. He walks in, and Jody says nothing about it. And then he realizes that she didn't tell him on page 140. I see she never told him at all. She didn't even forget to. She doesn't even just seem to know anything happened that was worth mentioning. Imagine the shame to this guy. wasn't wasn't worth bothering about in her mind when I mean, she just passed on. Um, that's when he gets the nail and goes in and tacks up the keys and and we never see him again. In the next section, chapter 2, Faulkner describes all of these waves of men coming to gawk at her, and we reach the point where there are four buggies. Each wave is succeeded by another, and it goes from younger men as she's aging to older, and it's interesting because it goes from mules, mules, to horses and buggies, stallions, that is where men are more manly, and, and a buggy to court with her, and then finally these four buggies. One of them is this drummer, you remember from the city, he comes and he um, he takes her to a dance, and you know what happens, that, um, she returns home without him because he's beaten up and he takes off and everybody learns that he was married anyway, and then McCarron comes into the picture, he's one of the three that are left. He dates her, these other men keep trying to follow because they resent that he's taking her out. And they constantly end up at this creek where the reins go slack and the horse drinks. And we know what happens. The two are making out. and the, The other men manage to anticipate them one night and come and attack them. There are five of them. And McCarran beats them all off and Eula helps. And at the end of that fight, she brings McCarran home and Varner sets his arm because McCarran has a broken arm. I want to just look quickly at at what happens then. Mm. On page 155, Varner sets the bone, Eula's there, she goes up to change her dress because both of them were bloody in that fight. Um, Varner sets it and we get this on page 155, middle of the page. He entered his accustomed state of unsnoring and childlike slumber and did not hear his daughter mount the stairs to remove this time the dress which had her own blood on it. The mayor, the buggy was gone by then. McCarran breaks his arm again sexually that night. Um, um, and he has to have it reset, um, and there's that description of her supporting him while they had sex. It's really interesting, if you watch, if you read Faulkner, um, Bob's description, what would you call it? Poetic prose or something Poetic like that? He gets He gets very lyrical in his descriptions. If, when you read the next section in this courtship that takes place, it, it's, it's one of the most lyrical prose sections in prose that I know of anywhere in literature, what happens to me is extraordinary. He never describes a sexual act. Yeah. Never. Never. It's always indirect. He, he knows of it, he implies it, he tries to do justice to it, then he never goes there. Because for him it's not the most important thing. What's, there are other things that are going on that are far more important. We know that they have sex, three months later um, it's learned that Eula's pregnant. The mother is outraged, Jody goes to get a gun, Varner finally stops him. And this is the last um, on page 161. We have a description of Varner and Flem and Eula walking to the clerk's office and Flem um, and, and Varner, I mean, and Flem and Eula marrying. Now, go on over to page 162.3. The second section of this last part of Eula is told from Eula's point of view. It's interesting that it shifts to her, it's like third person third-person limited. She knew him well, she knew him so well, we get everything from her at the top of 163. They pass in the house because Varner's there, I mean, Clem's um, there all the time. Um, Without rising or even turning her head, she would call towards the interior of the house, Papa, here's that man, or presently the man, Papa, here's the man again. But sometimes she said Mr. Snope, saying exactly as she would have said Mr. Dog. It's absolutely crucial that we should, we see, she had no interest in this man. None at all. In fact, her saying, you know, that she would have said it like Mr. Dog. There's a contempt for him, she doesn't care. But now we learn Varner marries his daughter off to this man, okay? Now, this, this to me reaches the, the pinnacle of this whole section on Eula. Ratlizov is in town, and he happens to be there on the day when Varner and Flem and Eula go to the chancellor's office, and they marry, okay? And this is what we get, top of 164. He watches them go to the circuit... Court <coughs> at the top. N- he didn't know what was going on, he happens in town. But this is what we get now from Varner's or I mean from Rappel's point of view. He did not need to to know what was going on. He knew what was happening now and he'd already gone on to the station there waiting an hour before the train was due, and he was not wrong. He saw the straw suitcase and the big telecope go into the vestibule. In that juxtaposition, no more paradoxical and bizarre, he saw the calm, beautiful mask beneath the Sunday hat once more beyond the moving window, looking at nothing, and that was all. Now hold on to this just for a second, because the description we're going to get to me in the next lines are going to be extraordinary. But what's happening is that, um, that's it. Man and woman walk into a house, that's what, or the clerk's office, that's what everybody saw, it's over. They get on a train and they're gone. Nobody will see them for another year. It won't be until Eula gives birth to her daughter that they'll see them again. That's it. It's like nothing's happened. Okay? And that was all. If he'd lived in Frenchman's Bend itself during that spring and summer, he would have known no more. That's it. He was known no more, a little lost village, nameless, without grace, forsaken, yet which wound once by chance and accident, one blind seed of the spendthrift Olympian ejaculation, and did not even know it without tumescence, conceived and bore, one bright brief summer, concentric, during which three fairly well-horsed buggies stood in steady rotation along a picket fence, or spun along adjacent roads between the homes and the crossroads stores and the schoolhouses and churches where people gathered for a pleasure or at least for escape and then overnight and simultaneously were seen no more. So concentric, I think means inward, is that right? Then eccentric, things moving out, buggies gone, vanished. A lean, loose-jointed, cotton-socked, shrewd, ruthless old man the splendid girl with her beautiful mask-like face, the frog-like creature with barely reached her shoulder, cashing a check, buying a license, taking a train. Now get this, because this word is going to string together the next page and a half. A word. So, get on a train, take off, taking a train. A word, a single will to believe born of envy and old deathless regret, murmured from cabin to cabin above the washing pots, and the sewing from wagon to horseman in roads and lanes, or from rider to halted plow in field furrows, the word, the dream and wish of all male under sun capable of harm, the young, who'd only dream yet of the runes they were still incapable of, the sick and the maimed, sweating in, se- in sleepless beds, impotent, the harm they will to do, the old, now glandless earth creeping, the very buds and blossoms, the garlands of whose yellow triumphs had long fallen into the profitless dust, embalmed now and no more dead to the living world, if they were sealed and buried vaults behind the impregnable matronly calico of others' grandchildren's grandmothers. The word, with its implications of lost triumphs and defeats, of unimaginable splendor in which best to have that word, that dream and hope for future, or to have had need to flee that world and dream for past, even one of the actual buggies remained. It's the vestige of, the only thing physically left as a reminder of what's just taken place. Um, even one of the buggies remained. Ratliff was to see it. Now, he, he recounts these sort of um, Apotheoses, the return of images of the Baggins, the the buggies that get passed down, you know, it, it ages and it gets transformed. Um, the list too, interchangeable, ranging from quarter to quarter between two of its passing appearances behind, a succession of spavined and bony horses and mules in wire and rope patched harness. It's come down to this. As if its owner had horsed it ten minutes, ago out of a secret boneyard for this particular final swan song of ap- apotheosis, which woefully misinformed as to its own capacities, was each time not the last." No matter how much that buggy gets transformed and redone and defaced and changed, it still holds on to something of that original moment. Um, but when he at last turned his little tough towards Frenchman's Bend again, Bookwright and Toll had long since turned home and told it. It was now September. They talk about what, what just happened um, it, on page 166. It was all right. It was just meat, just gal meat, he thought. And God knows there was plenty of that yesterday and tomorrow too. It goes on. Shortly after this exchange with um, Toll and Bookwright, Ratliff has this vision of Flynn meeting the devil, and I want to get to it. But before we do, any thoughts about this word and what it means? What, what, what is Faulkner showing us through Ratliff? <coughs> Does everybody understand what this word is? It's puzzling. Doc. Hmm?
2: Pregnant. Say again. Pregnant.
0: Pregnant. Flush. can you flush that out?
2: It, well I wouldn't have said one word uh, he says word, so that Neil is pregnant. <coughs> um, or maybe it's phlegm. I have no idea.
0: A word. A, a word. A single, we know that this word, whatever, it either is, it's a story about that phlegm goes off with this woman, with Eula. And all the degradation that that implies, that it passes from the old, the young, the sick, from, you know, in the villages, in the black, it even goes to the plants, that this word goes on and on and on and we've got what's left over is this, um, but it's this word, and it it strikes me, it's it's, it's as if something, (coughs) something of hope and defeat and splendor and dream is conveyed so that as the story gets passed on, either of the fact that Eula got sacrificed to this man, which to me is what this is about, that she gets sacrificed to this guy, that they're often or that or to put it another way, that Varner sold his daughter off, that he gave his daughter up to save his honor to this. Well, we're going to see what kind of a creature it is in just a second, to this man. Either it's a word about that or it's a pregnancy and all of it. But it, it seems to me you can't separate it. It's Varner married his daughter off who's pregnant, and this story goes everywhere. But, but what's at issue in the way that Ratliff describes it is that it, that story contains the hope, the defeats, the dreams. That something of the way that story is passed on expresses something that all of us feel even if we never get that deep, that it touches on something deep in all of us.
2: How come
3: you don't say anything about phlegm? I think he did to get ahead.
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
3: So maybe that's the story that Pep passed on. That was his dream, that he wanted to rise above.
0: Wait, I'm sorry, this is Ratliff talking about the word. Say it again.
3: That, I don't know what the word is, but the thought is that phlegm wanted to rise above his station, yeah, yeah. he wanted to, he would do anything, even marry her. Yeah, He did not love
0: her. I think that's a part of it. I think part of it, at least as I am understanding, because Rat, Ratliff doesn't show himself to be very angry here, but he, he's clearly upset. At the opening of the next section, The Long Summer, he's outraged. It's really interesting to watch this. He, he's very calm here. What we see in the next stage is he is furious at what just happened, absolutely furious. I think what's at stake is this culture, this county, this country, shamed itself by what just happened. I mean, it it, it, it exceeded to Phlegm, Varner, marrying his daughter off to this man who will use anybody to get ahead. The shame of it. Um,
2: And the girl never was
0: able to marry someone she loved. Yeah, I it's, it's not even clear that she could, I mean but would, but, but, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> kind of strange. But it's strange. They do like their own choices. It's
2: not a shame of anything. It's not, you their bad
0: oh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Varner, I mean this phrase, uh, the, and particularly that phrase, you know, on page 63, and one day they clapped her into her Sunday clothes. I mean this is, this is a culture, a father, she, some says she doesn't have that choice mark I mean as we she's too young and she's pregnant and there's a sense of honor that has to be saved to her and so one day they clapped her into her Sunday clothes and put the rest of her things on and the tawdry mail order negligee and nightgown, the big cheap flimsy shoes and what toilet things she had into the tremendous bag and took her to town in the Surrey and married her to him. That's a daughter being married off uh, Hmm. Made it, she made a bad choice and found up for it. Well, I mean, you and can put it that way. I don't think... Yeah, I don't, her choice wasn't
3: to marry guy. Yeah, yeah, well, be she should have made a better choice. Well, I mean, I... <laughs> I mean,
0: I do mean, sorry for her. It feels
2: not feel It's not a shame.
0: It's, a shame. it's well, just alive. Well, I, I do, I do. To me, it's there's lots, I mean, lots of people make bad... All of it, I would say, I mean, I speak, huh. let me speak for myself. I can't count the number of choice, bad choices I've made in my life and regret and continue to make them as I age. I mean, we're, all of us are under the effects of a fall. We don't, we're not angels. We don't live in heaven. We're fallen creatures. Otherwise, why don't we go to confession? We live with our fall. The shame of this is, and, and Faulkner's done everything he can to show the magnitude of it. This is this extraordinarily beautiful creature. And what, what we're watching is that she's being sacrificed to a flawed sense of honor by these men. It, I mean, Faulkner makes it clear, none of the men wants to marry her. And I can understand it. I mean, if, if, if I, I, I'm trying to picture myself as a 15-year-old boy watching Sophia Lauren walk around. I mean, I would think 90% of the men walking around her have no other thought than to go to bed with her. The thought of marrying her? are you? What man would be in his right mind to marry a woman like that? He'd be fighting off men, not to say what he would do with himself for the rest of his life. I mean, Faulkner makes that clear. None of these men want to marry her. They don't. And, and I, I passed over that passage where it says something about waking in the appetites of all these men, um, because what what he's showing us is, is what he's showing us is the extraordinary power that beauty has in the world, and it's the particular power it has over men. And I don't think we're going to underestimate that or, or just dismiss it as she made a bad choice. That's an abstraction that doesn't deal with the concrete reality. She um, she. She's in a class, and when Lebov asks her a question about the study, she said, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> you know? um, anyway, let me stop there. This word is being passed on. Something's being transmitted. A story, a rumor. You can call it the beginning of a myth. Because something extraordinary. But the interesting thing is, these people, for the people, nothing's happened. That's it. It's over. Okay? Now, hold on to that, because when we, when the next chapter begins, Ratliff's going to be furious. And what we're going to deal with in the next chapter is this love between this lover and his beloved. And what we're going to be shown is this contrast between what just happened between Flynn and Eula, this man who cares nothing about love. I mean, what what, what Faulkner's showing us is he's uncovering the way in which this economic world destroys love in people. We're not watching love. And when you read the next chapter, you're going to see this lover do everything he can in adoration to adore, to love, to take care of, to, you know. what? How many men do that sort of thing today? And an embarrassment, I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to reveal myself. On Valentine's Day, they run out and get all these flowers. Don't get me started on that. Do not get me started. How many men through the year, through the year, Express that kind of love for the woman they say they love. So when you hold these two things, Wagner knows exactly what he's doing. We've got Eula and Flem, Eula being married, the two of them going off, and then mm-hmm. we'll have this next chapter. But here I want to end. Ratliff is processing all of this, and suddenly he has this vision. Okay, on page one hundred nine. One of the henchmen. One, oh, sorry, one sixty-eight. One sixty-eight. One of the henchmen of the prince comes to him and says they can't shake the phlegm, they can't get rid of him, on page 168. He says, why not? Offering him the thing. And the henchman says, we made a deal, but we lost his... <laughs> Doesn't this sound familiar? Have none of you, any of you ever had experiences where you get caught in a bureaucracy where a paper made the reality of something and they couldn't find it and you became a lost number, you know, whatever <laughs> it is like that? They can't find the contract. So the prince is saying, offering something. That's what you do. If, if you don't get good servant as a plate, they usually comp you. They will give you something to make up for. But he won't, he won't let it go at that on page 168. Offer them. What would you go? The gratifications. And he has them. And then the vanities. And he has them. He doesn't want any of it. Then what does he want? No, the old one says, he wants hell. And now for a while, they're in a sound in this magnificent, they're in this cavern, this hollow hell, with and you know the prince is the here, this is so the prince is clearly the heir to Satan's throne. So he stands to Satan the same way Jody does to Varn. He's the prince. Now what's going to happen to this prince? Who's the heir to the kingdom? Um, the bottom 168, but the prince was the same stock and blood as his paw was. In a flash, the sybaritic indul- indolence and the sneers was gone. It might have been the old prince himself that stood there. Bring him to me, he says. So they bring phlegm in, and he asks, um, what do you want? And, um, the funny description of phlegm of a, a is that when you open a matchbox, and I hope, I assume you all see the significance of that. Because he's known as being a barn burner, his soul is a, is described in terms of a of a matchbox that's empty with a little smudge in it. That's his soul. He traded his soul in, and he wants these things back. Um, he wants his deal, and he can't get it. Um, and remember, it, on one sixty, says the reason is he says it says at the bottom on one sixty. He says a bargain is a bargain. Now they can't find his soul, or I mean the certificate on him, he wants what he came for. And I'm at the top of 169, <clears throat> he comes up, well, the prince says, he turned his head and spit and spit, <laughs> the spit frying off the floor quick as a little blue ball of smoke. I come about that soul, he says. So they tell me, the prince says, but you have no soul. Is that my fault, he says. I mean, think, picture, it. is Flem ever going to not have an answer for anybody? This goes back to that thing I said a while ago where reason will always have an answer. So they tell me, that, um, but you have no soul. Is that my fault, he says. Is it mine, the prince says. Do you think I created you? Then who did, he says. And he had the prince there. <laughs> to, to answer that, the prince has to acknowledge that there's somebody greater than he is. So the prince set out to bribe him himself. He named all the temptations. He goes, look, he gives all this stuff. And Flem continues to say, he doesn't want any of them. What do you want? The prince says. What do you want? Paradise. I hadn't figured on it, says. Is it yours to offer? Then whose is it? The prince says. And the prince knows he had him then. So each of them is getting the other. It's like watching um, Ab with Pat Stamper. Um, Go down. Um... In fact, the prince knowed he had him all the time. Ever since they had told him how he'd walked in the door with his mouth already full of law, the basis of the contract between them is law. And what we're watching is, a, is Phlegm, ratless vision of Phlegm dealing with the devil over an issue of law. Who can get the better of the other? Which is what we've been watching all along. Um, you have admitted and even argued that I created you. Therefore, your soul was mine all the time. And therefore, when you offered it as a security for this note, remember all the notes that have been passed? you offered that which you did not possess and so laid yourself liable to. I've never disputed that, he says. Criminal action. And you can see just go, the way you, you're making an argument and somebody's not even hearing you. I, I've never disputed that, he says. Criminal action. So take your bag. And the prince says, Huh? The prince says, what did you say? I've never disputed that, he says. What, the prince says, disputed what? He said that it don't make any noise. And now the prince is leaning forward and now he feels that air hot floor under his knees and he can feel his self grabbing and hauling at his throat to get the words like he was digging potatoes out of hard ground. Who are you, he says, choking and gasping. His eyes are popping up at him, sitting there with that straw suitcase on the throne among the bright crown shaped flames. Take paradise, the prince screams. Take it, take it. And the wind roars and the dark roars down, the prince scrabbing across the floor, clawing and scrabbling at that locked door screaming. What's just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds
2: like he bested the devil.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, not the devil, the prince. He beat the twelve. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting that he, I mean, no argument will answer because he'll always have an answer. And It's, 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 it's interesting because it's Ratliff's vision I think of Flem at this moment and it's, it, it parallels Jody's, remember um, Flem's usurpation of Jody's airship, that we're, what Ratliff is showing us is the spiritual implications of what's just taken place, but my question is why does this take place right now at this moment after what happened with Flem and Eula, and this word that is being passed on, why does Ra- why does this section? Because the next section it's going to shift focus. We're going to we're going to be dealing with these two lovers. This is the completion of the Flem section. Why does Faulkner end this section with ratless vision of this? Well, I, I thought,
1: because when he said, "Go ahead and take paradise," I mean, I know he thought I mean, the prince was Jody and comes in and bests Jody, and I thought at the very end where he says, "Fine, take Paradise." Jody was very protective of Eula, and at the end he says, "Who, it, it, Who? of Eula? Who was protective? Jody. Jody he was very protective of mm-hmm. her and didn't want all these men. To, and finally, he said, "Fine, just take her." And when he said, "Take Paradise," just, just, all right, you've taken everything else. Just take my sister. I tried to protect and I wanted to defend
0: it how does that relate to this now?
1: that at the end because to me the prince was Jody the prince in the story is Jody he's yeah. besting and Flynn is is besting Jody and that's, to me that's the parody there that's yeah what he's trying to yeah and so at the fa- at the end the prince is he's he's so frustrated and his eyes are burning and he's Gotten to the end, and he can't take anymore. He just wants this person gone, and he says, "Fine, take paradise." And I thought the paradise was him. He just saying, "Okay, take my sister. Take the last thing I really have that's
2: worth something."
0: Now, take what you're saying because because of no. I think it's really good. (laughs) Take what you're saying and see it as a parallel to the Jody story and Varner and everything that's implied in what you said. But tr- treat it as being literally real on its own level. That this is phlegm engaging the prince. The real what,
1: prince of darkness, like
0: well, like but this isn't Satan. This isn't Satan because this guy talks about his paw. I mean, uh, okay. right, Or I don't think it is. I think it's the prince heir. To, but maybe I'm right, maybe, maybe I saw Satan.
1: the prince
0: as that was uh, Jodie. It was a representation. Of yeah, but take it. Faulkner's not. He's, he's not a, he's not a Byzantine, he's not a medieval, yeah. in a Byzantine world you'll have an allegory where the allegory is more real than the, in the modern world it's really important to take seriously the literal representation of something. Okay. So everything you're saying it seems to me applies allegorically to Jody and right. exactly the way you described it. But take it at face value as being real in itself. What is Ratliff? you? are asking why is he dreaming that now? Why it's a vision. Why does he? Yeah. What is? What is? How do we understand that vision at this <laughs> point? Somebody else said It's
2: not like he's having this revelation about the evilness or the character of Flem, because he already knows that. But is so is that.
0: Like but he did he well, know the depth of it. Validated.
2: So,
0: uh? so the depth so of so so yeah. the depth yeah. right. right. Actually but, yeah. coming to the realization
2: ultimate.
0: Yeah. I really think that's that you know, I mean if, put it in human terms of, in the way that we know it, we can all have some notion of evil in our head, as an abstraction. But can we point to actual events in which we can have any sense of the depth of the evil involved in it? Because two th- two things are going on. It seems to me one of them is with Varner and and Flem. Um, Varner's trade sold his daughter. He's he's really sacrificed her to this male code of honor, this or cultural code of honor, put it that way. But it seems to me we don't have. We're one of the reasons that that um, Faulkner goes to such lengths to show what's, the implication of what's going on here, the, the Olympian ejaculation of the media, and wound, this extraordinary creature, and to see, to see her married off like this, I mean, it is, it's a wound to the honor of the South, the men who care so much about honor, and at some level it shows the depth of Phlegm's evil, because what's at issue is he sold his soul for, what in his mind is paradise. He's going to keep rising. He's going to be in a mansion at the very end. Yeah. But the cost of it is this extraordinarily beautiful woman. And, and it's gone. And, and, and the way he described it earlier, who cares? I mean, it's, you know, it's, she, she gets on the train and he says, and that was it. But that wasn't it. Something remarkable just happened. Who saw to the depths of it? I think Ratliff is at this point seeing just just how deep the evil is. Sorry, go. Ahead.
3: But the, it's it's a, it's a society that in fact is is divided by having a group of people who are who have um, what would you say prominence and who have a, a, an honor code, and that's the Varners. And you're talking about the Snopes, who basically have no, no code no. because they are the suppressed group, and they're trying to rise above it.
0: Wait, and who finds suppression? I don't see any suppression, well, I mean, suppression in the suppression Snopes
3: in the group. The sense that they have there's
0: a class. We have no people. evidence that they were suppressed anyway. Well, I mean, they that's a the Marxist reading of ten, this.
3: The fact <laughs> that they're that they're tenant farmers is a is an example of they They've come in there with they didn't come take with you know he they didn't have any money. The,
2: the yeah. uh, store,
3: yeah. huh? Little by little, Flynn took over the store. Yeah. Then he took over this, and he
0: took so over that. You know, to me, it's a, you know, That's it's suppressing. A, it's a, but relate to the ratless vision. How are you? What's what do you? How does this throw a light on that vision? What's? Well, I mean, it's it's
3: well, uh, the 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 vision is is that if you don't have if you have no no moral code no you know you don't care right, right. i mean i mean what's the soul word to you i mean i mean people exactly who have, people who have I mean people a who smudge in the max box right, people who commit murder i mean who right. worry you know right. they don't worry about right. I mean they, right you know right or anything else right. I mean.
2: and i think his paradise was just what he was getting on earth and that yeah. That he said he was feeling is this is going to be where you're going to end up at the
0: end. And, right. You I mean the prince thinking out of Flint? Yeah. Except except the prince is exasperated. It, you, you get an image of well, Jody that he he he's taking he it over.
3: Him to have a soul. And wanted him to, to do <laughs> some right. He's not
2: doing any right.
0: By the way, just when you think about this Ratliff vision, remember Christ's words to the Pharisees when they talked about. Um, a house divided against itself. When they, when they accused him of healing, I think, on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. and asked by what means he, or where, the source of his power, and he said,
2: mm-hmm. how
0: can I take it from Satan? Think about the nature of evil as we understand it, that it cannot stand itself, it will always divide down. It's a really interesting parody of, of phlegm, of showing phlegm actually taking over hell, but, in, but it seems to me anticipating the very nature of evil itself, that it will always undo itself. I mean, here's the prince being usurped. And he says, take it, take it. I mean, his aspiration exasperation. He's giving it up, which is, a good, which is a good description of Jody, I think, at some point, you know, when he just. We have to stop because we're late. Anyway, the next section will, will either be a real treat or, or you're going to be horrified. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm well into it, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm you it. You huh? talking about it. I know. You know, I, it yeah. There. I was like, oh, okay. No, I, like,
2: well, yeah, I, 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 I so think <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>